Hello and welcome to Meet My Potential podcast where we talk to leaders from around the world to inspire and to ignite your potential. This is your host Deepana Trajan from Toulouse in France and today we're going to talk to Cheryl Thompson. She is a woman with a lot of grit and determination and I have a whole lot of admiration for her. She worked for Ford Motors for over 31 years and today she is a CEO and founder of Center of Automotive Diversity and Inclusion and Advancement. It is in her mission to double the number of diverse leaders in the automotive industry by 2030. Hi Cheryl, how are you doing this morning? I'm great Deepa, how are you? Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us. And can you give listeners a little bit of a background as to what got you interested and to joining the automotive industry? Oh boy. Well, I kind of fell into it on accident. Um, when I was in high school, when I was 17, I ended up getting pregnant with my son and I had been waitressing at the time and I kept waitressing because it was great money. Tips are a, a great way to make a living um, when you don't have that educational background yet. I had plans to go to college, but I had to put those on hold. So I was waitressing and my dad who was an engineer at Ford Motor Company said, you know, if you're going to waitress, why not apply at Ford Motor Company? Their food service was internal at the time. It's since been outsourced. But I applied and they hired me on the spot, like gave me an apron and said, here, go start washing dishes in the basement of the World Headquarters uh -huh. building. Uh -huh. um, so I did that for a couple of years. And then they were trying to recruit women and minorities to go into the skilled trades. Uh -huh. And I thought an electrician, a pipe fitter, I know what that is. I can do that. And if I ever get laid off, I will have work on the outside. Well, they were looking for tool and die makers. And I had no idea what that was. Uh, I thought I was going to make tools and dye them. And I found out that it's working on and building dyes that go into these presses and stamp out car parts. So think about a fender, a roof, a door, right? So I did that uh, apprenticeship for four years, graduated, was a journey person for a couple of years. And I had a superintendent who was a, a mentor, I would even say a sponsor, and mm -hmm. convinced me to go into engineering. So really opened up his network, um, gave me access to uh, some opportunity to interview. So most of my career, I moved into engineering and most of my career was in engineering, manufacturing, operations, uh, product development. So I kind of fell into uh, automotive, but then I found out that I'm a fourth generation auto worker. My great grandfather, uh, I found his draft card from 1913 and he was a punch press operator. And my great, my grandfather was uh, a pipe fitter. And then I mentioned my father being an engineer. So I think it was in my blood. It was meant to be. <laughs> <laughs> and things just happen. And then now you find yourself connecting the dots way back yes. to your great, great grandfather. Yeah. And what made you stay in Ford Motors for 31 years? Well, because I was raising a son, I needed that stability and the income and, you know, just being able to give him a, a safe place to live and help him along with getting his start in life. So the paycheck and the benefits became really, really important. Um, and, you know, I did like the work. Uh, manufacturing is really, really fun. I love making things. 
um, you know, being able to come up with a concept and then see something uh, tangible at the end of the day that we were able to produce or achieve. Uh, so, you know, a little, little bit of both that kept me in it. <laughs> right. And I'm really curious to know, like from there, 31 years mm -hmm. at Ford Motors in the manufacturing segment, and then what, how did you pave your way into diversity, equity, and inclusion? Wow. How did that shift I happen? Yeah, well, I started doing things while I was still at Ford in the women's resource groups. So we had employee resource groups. There was women in manufacturing. And I became really active, um, you know, in the area that we were in. We formed our own chapter. And I would do speaking in, at some of those events. And then I started a little pilot group with about six women and took them through a course on empowerment and how do you take ownership of your career, how do you set boundaries, things like that. And I found out that work really fueled me. I loved it. And I saw the potential that women had inside of them that wasn't being realized. And I knew that it was just, it, it was time <laughs> to start focusing on how do we unearth all of that talent that has been hidden, that's been undervalued, underutilized, um, because uh, I just think there's so much more that women can bring to the table that's being overlooked by companies. So I wanted to be a part of that. So that's how did you I ever feel? It. Did you ever feel that you were a minority? Oh my goodness, absolutely, all the time. <laughs> I was a minority all of the time. I mean, you know, think about my tool and die days. That was back in the late '80s. I was yeah. one woman of six out of thousands. <laughs> so, yes, definitely. And a young woman with a son. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. What are some of those challenges of being a minority, if you look back now? I think the biggest thing is thinking there was something wrong with me. <laughs> you know, I felt like I was being watched all the time. You know, people would stand back and I felt like they were thinking, hmm, I'm not sure if she can do it. And mm -hmm. because I felt that, I doubted myself. Uh, mm -hmm. So I just think it's that fear of failing, um, the fear of making a mistake, uh, wanting to kind of blend into the background because I did stand out. So I think that was the biggest challenge. You know, the own, the, the little tricks we play in our own heads. <laughs> I just want to stop there and highlight mm -hmm. the three different things that you just mentioned. Whenever somebody doubts us, that triggers our own internal doubt. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly why we don't like people who criticize us, because it triggers our own inner critique. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's so true. And uh, the second thing that you mentioned is a fear of making a mistake. Mm -hmm. Because if you make a mistake, you'll stand out. Right. And how do I keep safe in this place where I'm not sure I belong, where I'm not so sure that I'm accepted? And then we try so much to blend in. I remember working in organizations way back where I would wear certain type of clothes. And I was someone who loved color. To, I wanted to color my hair, but I didn't because I knew that if I colored my hair, I would stand out from the rest of the girls. I would stand out in terms of the culture of the organization and I would dress in certain ways to just blend in and to not stand out. So we give up a whole lot of our own sense of identity in that process. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. For years, I wore black, dark colors to fit in <laughs> to the manufacturing environment. You could, you see me now, I'm wearing the, like this, you know, colorful jacket. I, right. I really, that took a long time uh, to, to switch out of wearing those dark colors. <laughs> I know, I know. And this exact same thing happened to me in France. Like when I moved uh, here, I noticed everybody was wearing gray, white, black, and that's it. So I gave up all my Indian color clothes, which was like orange, oh, no. white, and red, and all of that, because I just wanted to fit in. And that, and for years it was like that. And I realized that I went all the way out to adapt myself to another culture that I started to lose my own sense of identity. Mm. Mm. And that's when suddenly you find yourself and you say like, well, what's happening? Like when I take the flight and I go back to India, I can be myself. I can wear all those colored clothes back again. But then when I come back, you know, I will just fit into a different costume and be a different person. And we start to lose that sense of inner harmony the minute we do that. Oh, you just, I got chills when you said that. When, when you talked about going back to India and being able to be your authentic self and wear the clothes, I mean, I just got chills because it's so expansive. And then the opposite, when we, when we can't be our authentic selves, our brains don't work as well <laughs> when we can't be our authentic self, right? So absolutely, in a world where we can empower everyone to be their authentic selves, how much better the workplace is going to be for everyone, how much more productive we're going to be, um, the results that are going to come in performance and profitability. And here's the thing. We don't, I don't know if there's any research that proves, like, because there is authenticity, but that authenticity is also about expressing the crazy ideas, the different ways that my brain functions, which is very different from the norm base that I'm actually find myself in. And therefore we lose out on the creativity. So, you know, there are numbers and there are KPIs on diversity that you can hire somebody on diversity, but when that inclusion factor is not there and we're not open to hearing all the different voices in the system, we're really not tapping into the diversity. We're not tapping into the diversity and we're doing people a disservice. I mean, we, we can have that negative impact if the inclusion and the belonging isn't there. Um, I think it's more damaging. How, can you say a little bit more about that? Can you give an example to go further on that? Yes, yes. So if if somebody um, from a different background comes into a company because the company is trying to promote diversity and that person doesn't feel included, uh, they, they're not sure if they belong, they're not sure if they can be their authentic selves, they're going to do exactly what we were just talking about. They're going to try to blend in and in. They're, they're not going to be as creative their, their brain's not going to work as well, and they're going to turn into everybody else, and then we don't get the advantage of diversity. They're going to be frustrated, and they're probably not going to stay, you know, especially now with this whole worker shortage crisis that we have right now. There are a lot of options for people. Um, right. So if, the, if a company's culture isn't ready to receive someone who's different, I think all of this effort that we spend on recruiting uh, diversity, uh, if we're not ready to receive it, um, you know, it can backfire. Right, right. And, you know, I truly, having done many transformation pro projects and large-scale transformation projects, like, what I've noticed is, like, I reach the capacity of transformation, like a 70%, 
And then I hit limits and I hit limits because the limits of the transformation that I can achieve is very often the limit of the leadership capacity of the top team. And mm-hmm. so if the top leadership team doesn't work as a leadership team and is not open to diversity, equity, and inclusion, it just doesn't function. And it and that's like the glass ceiling. Yes, yes. And well, I noticed that. And here is the difference. When I started working in IT companies 25 years ago now, almost, uh, I remember, like as a team member, 40% of the team was for women. And I remember when I was even managing teams, 40% of my team was for women. And then today, 2021, I can find myself in a room with the senior executives, the CEO, with just white men, mm-hmm. no diversity in any aspects. And so what's going on? Like, how come there was 40% women back then? What happened to all the women between then and 2021? That's a really good question. From what I've seen in some research that I have seen, women are leaving at corporate at huge rates to start their own businesses. I think you and I are examples of that. <laughs> how, because yeah. how do you explain that? Well, I think women are sometimes like the canary in the coal mine. Um, we're knowing something isn't quite right and we're, we're not going to settle. And I think that uh, there's opportunities out there to start our own businesses Uh, So I think there's a few different things going on. I think um, at some point you realize um, this culture isn't healthy. It's not not inclusive. I don't feel like I belong. And we know that maybe there's a bigger mission out there where we can really um, shift um, Mm -hmm. and and transform things. Uh, So there's that sense of purpose that we can find outside. Um, so I, th- I think there's a lot of different factors, but I am seeing more and more women leaving corporate to start their own businesses. And I'm also seeing that with people of color, they're not going to accept, um, the status quo anymore. And if they can't find that change inside their company, they're leaving to start their own businesses. So that could be one reason why that, um, you saw that decrease from 40% women right. <laughs> in leadership right. to virtually zero. Right. And we talk about women of color. Mm-hmm. And also at the same time, a lot of men of color approach me for coaching and they tell me, Deepa, it's much more difficult for a man of color to be accepted than a woman of color. And I have noticed that bias. I have noticed that I, ha- I haven't found it to be extremely difficult as an entrepreneur and as, as a woman of color. I've just felt invited and I've never felt any kind of bias, but I know, and I'm conscious it's not the same for my male colleagues. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Have you noticed that? Well, I can only speak to corporate for, for men of color mm-hmm. and I'll have, I'll, I'll be honest, you know, the first time I sat in a focus group with men of color, and talked about their experience at work, I had to stop myself from saying, oh my gosh, that happened to me too. 
<laughs> it, it's it's amazing that men of color often face bias, uh, imposter syndrome, um, microaggressions, <laughs> um, feeling like they have to put a face on um, mm-hmm. that reflects unhappy even when they're not happy because they don't want to have that stereotype of I'm an angry black man. Mm-hmm. Um, or there's that, that whole issue of if I get promoted or people going to think I got promoted just because I'm a black male. Right. So there's just right. a lot of those same things that women and other underrepresented groups face. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes for, for men of color, black, uh, black men, African-American men, um, it, it can be, um, it can be something that's under the surface that I don't think gets talked about a lot. And, and I think we don't spend enough time thinking about overall. Exactly. Because there are lots of support groups for women and there yes. aren't way too many for men out there. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. But I am seeing a little bit of a shift because we do see more men of color in these diversity and inclusion groups, like a diversity council or an employee resource group or a business resource group. So I think that men are finding power in community and, and to be able to talk, have these conversations. Um, you know, in the United States, we have the incident with George Floyd, which allowed us to have conversations about race in the workplace that we've never had. So that's been pretty powerful. So, you know, my hope is that we can make that change and and have people stay in corporate with that, that are, you know, can bring that rich diversity. Exactly. So, you know, um, I'm a firm believer that we can change cultures one conversation at a time. Conversations are like seeds that get planted into people's brain. And sometimes it might just sprout and grow into a big tree. And that's exactly why I have these podcasts. And uh, so... When you look at an organization, what are the different points of leverage that where we can start to shift the culture to have a more inclusive leadership? Well, I think, number one, you know, we were just talking about the, the power of changing culture. If we are different and we come into a culture and we assimilate and we try to fit in and belong, Mm-hmm. Um, we're not going to make any progress. Mm-hmm. I think that if we encourage people to be their authentic selves, to be mm-hmm. different and bring different, that mm-hmm. is what's going to allow us to, to change culture. So I think at the individual level, it starts there of people feeling comfortable to bring their whole selves, their full selves, their best selves to work so that they can do their best work. Um, so, so that's one level. So I, I just want to retreat, like, so at mm-hmm. an individual level to summarize here, the first thing is include yourself. You mm-hmm. count. Don't yes. reject yourself. Be- right. Even if you're a minority, you've got to stand up and you've got to shout, like, make your voice heard. And that's the duty that you can do for yourself because it's easy to be excluded and it's easy to fall into the trap of I'm a minority You've got to stand up for yourself. No one else will. Oh, absolutely. Beautifully put. Beautifully put. The best compliment I ever got on one mm-hmm. of my performance reviews, I had taken on a leadership role and I was a year in and the feedback that I got was you did not let the leadership team change you. You changed the leadership team. 
Fabulous. Fabulous. Mm -hmm. So to our audience who's listening, like you can be the change agent that changes the system. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Fabulous. What's the second point? Like, no. Well, the second point is yeah. we have to start thinking about leadership commitment. So companies can get to a certain level. You were talking about that 70% transformation and then things kind of stall out. So I've watched companies do diversity, equity, and inclusion grassroots where it's bottom up. And, and that's great to start with. But they can only go so far if the leadership team isn't on board and committed in really role modeling behaviors Uh that are inclusive and really promoting equity and inclusion. So having that top leadership team on board is key. They set the tone at the top. They set the priorities. They are modeling what's valued. And they have the power and the influence to pull those levers and turn those knobs for the systemic changes that are needed. So that leadership commitment would be number two. And then the third thing is the systemic change, which I just kind of um, set up. It's thinking about how do we source talent? How do we recruit talent? How do we hire? You know, thinking about the way we interview Um, making sure there's diversity on the candidate slate, but also making sure there's diversity on the interview panel, Um, thinking about how do we figure out who's ready for that next step. When we have those behind closed doors discussions about career development and succession planning, really ensuring that there's someone at the table that is different, that can point out maybe some unconscious biases uh, that are happening. And then how do we assess performance? Our model in terms of how we define high performance has tended to be set up as, you know, the typical white male. We all don't perform and have the same behaviors, right? So it's accepting and valuing and celebrating difference when we're thinking about performance and looking at who's ready for that next leadership level um, or career opportunity to, to help develop themselves. So um, so that's a piece of it. And the other part of systemic change is looking at the way we set up benefits, policies, procedures, flexibility. Um, so the systemic change is a whole other piece that I think is pretty big. So at an, at an individual level, don't try to fit in, stand up, voice your mm-hmm. opinion. And number two, have that leadership commitment from the top team, because if the top team doesn't change, it we reach a seating limit. And that's very clear. And number three is there needs to be systems and processes in place for that systemic change to happen. And number four is assess performance differently. And I want to touch upon that assess performance differently because there's this notion of culture. So when I work with a lot of senior exec teams, I have found myself in situations where I walk into a workshop and I'm just there with men only. And this has happened several times over the course of last six, seven years. And I ask them the question, how come there are no women here? And I hear the answer, oh, we did have one or two women. They left. They were overwhelmed. Uh, I think it was difficult for them to manage. Um, And so there is this culture that I see that is being implicitly set, which is, We have key leadership positions where we work extremely hard. We work till seven o'clock in the night. We have dinner with our families. We get back on the laptop and computer and we start working again. We finish work at 11 o'clock. We do check in 
to our mails in the weekend and we work for about four to six hours and that's pretty normal. While we have a system that takes care of us, that allows us to flourish into these top positions where, you know, we need to perform and have those business results. And my partner is there to take care of the children and the family and everything else. And that's not always the case for women. Right. And so for generations, we have accepted something and set a norm here. And how do we break into that culture? And that culture needs to shift. So it's not just a change with the minority level or with just women only. There's also a huge shift in culture from men. And it's not that men are not accepting of women. That's not the problem at all. It's just that we've just created this culture mm-hmm. that is not inclusive. What right, are, right. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think it's it's a culture that's not inclusive. I also think it's a culture that's not equitable. Uh, if you think about the way systems were set up, processes and systems and the way we work today, it, it was really kind of put together in the 1950s by men for men. And they often had a partner at home who's taking care of things, um, the home, the house, the spouse, <laughs> right? Um, the, the emotional labor, all of that. And so they haven't had to worry about some of the things that women have to worry about. Um, so I, you know, when we sit with, uh, with a leadership team, we start them thinking about the conversations they need to have as a leadership team and with mm-hmm. their leaders that are, you know, the layers underneath them about, let's talk about how we ended up where we're at. What access did we have to opportunity, network, and mentors? Does everybody have that same access to mentors, network, and opportunity? And often they realize, hmm, maybe not. (laughs) Um, The other thing that we ask them is, how do you define success? What does it take to be successful at your company, right? And often it's an advanced degree. Um, often it is um, having those positions that are profit and loss, uh, customer facing or operational. Um, and then we say, well, what would prevent others from having the same opportunity um, for, for success, right? There's things that get in the way, the, the lack of opportunity to get an advanced degree, uh, the, the lack of confidence maybe to take on a role that has profit and loss responsibility, right? So it's just really helping them think through what gets in the way, what are the barriers and the obstacles uh, for people who don't look like them? Mm-hmm. Fabulous. I think uh, when you ask all of those questions, mm-hmm. we start to realize the privilege that we have Yes. And from that place of privilege, we can create a more inclusive culture. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And before we end this episode, what's one last message you'd like to share for the audience? If you feel like you don't fit into the culture, you're there to change it. <laughs> absolutely. Can't agree more on that. Thank you so much, Cheryl, for being here with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Cheryl. The one thing I take away is that there are moments where we are deliberately excluded. There are moments of awkwardness. There are moments of microaggressions. And these moments lead us to thinking and questioning ourselves as to 
what is wrong with me? Is something wrong? What's happening? Why is this happening to me? And we move into a fitting in culture. We move into a mode of compliance. And what Cheryl and I would love for you is to become aware of those awkward moments and stop questioning yourself and stop trying to fit in. Let's take bolder and courageous steps to be included. The number one mistake or the number one thing that we can do that doesn't serve us is to auto-exclude ourselves. So let's not self-sabotage ourselves. Let's have complete faith and trust in our abilities and take the courageous steps to be included. Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to talking to you again. And until then, stay cool.